Super Talk Mississippi media production. Have you been seriously injured? Mama Justice is here for you. Our medical team partners with top-notch doctors, surgeons, therapists, and urologists, ensuring a comprehensive recovery journey. If you've been injured, call Mama Justice today. We're here for you. Howdy, howdy. It's Rhino here, and I wanted to say thank you for listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi. Get ready, get ready to go beyond the headlines and join a meaningful conversation with people from around the state. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi. Welcome to Midday Super Talk Mississippi. I'm your host, Gerard Gibbert, along with Will East in for Rhino today in the Element Wealth Studios, guiding you through the middle of your day with facts, fodder, and fine music. Kicking off a brand new week here, Will. It is. Everybody's back in the groove of being back at work, you know, after a couple of days. Well, you didn't get many days off. You got, what, Thursday off. That's it. You had to work Friday. Yeah. Took one for the team there. Took one for the team. (laughs) But everybody's back at work, and of course, uh, everybody's talking about Lane Kiffin. That's the only thing. Man, it's dominating the news in uh, the state of Mississippi, isn't it? And still has not signed the contract. Yeah, it's... Said he's staying, but hadn't, hadn't put the uh, the old pen to the paper yet. and put his Johnny Hancock on there yet. So, uh, yeah, so that's what everyone has been talking about. And then the Hugh Free situation with him... Maybe going to Auburn, but maybe not now. So that's been the big conversation. The game's just, you know, that that's an afterthought. That's Secondary. not even important. <laughs> crazy. Totally crazy. So we absolutely had a cornucopia of college football. It was rivalry weekend. And it was a good one, too. It was a good one. Lots of good games. A fair number of surprise outcomes. I would say the Texas A&M Fighting Aggies' defeat Woo. of the LSU Fighting Tigers was uh, a bit of a surprise, but a huge surprise. They looked pretty good. Did uh, uh, Texas A&M quarterback, running back? Where have they been all year? I don't know. When they got it all rolling, they're rolling. They're Man, <clears throat> well, I know uh, several of my LSU buddies out at the, out at the golf club yesterday. They were in a bit of state of mourning <laughs> after the game. And I can understand why, because they look like they were pretty much uh, in the driver's seat to win out. I just don't think they expected to go over to College Station and get uh, taken down that way. Now they got to go over to Atlanta and play Georgia yeah, who in the SEC like championship game. The best. So we've got the uh, the finals, right? The playoffs. The championship games are set this weekend, yeah. The playoffs, not yet. That's still, okay. Okay, that's right. That's yeah. still outstanding. But the championship game. So, uh, but don't we still have one, two, three, four? I mean, at this mm-hmm. point, right? Georgia, USC, <laughs> Michigan, TCU. Isn't that right? That's essentially it. And yeah. there could be some with these with the way things are going. You never know. There could be some upsets here and there. So we'll see. Yeah. 
USC, UCLA. Uh, you know, when I was a kid, that was always the one you looked forward to. I mean, it, it got that. Uh, Oklahoma, Nebraska, I would say. Michigan, yeah. Ohio State. Those would I kind of remember being the big-time rivalries that seemed to, get, to have gotten more national attention, I would mm-hmm. say, in the 60s, 70s. Coast, if you go look it up, they won a bunch of national championships back then. You know, they've kind of, the, the Pac-12, I guess, has kind of faded somewhat. But USC still, I think, right, have the record for Heisman Trophy winners. And, yes. uh, and I think that maybe right up there with national championships, it, it also comes as a surprise that they were pretty dang good in baseball for a long time, too, back when they used to focus on that. I will have to say that even though I'm obviously a uh, long-time uh, and totally invested Ole Miss fan, I like USC's uniforms. I like their traditions. I like the the Trojan, uh, the their fight song, the band. It's just cool. The band with the helmets. You gotta admit they look look like centuries Trojans. I guess they it's come out cool. there with that guy on the horse and he throws the it's sword awesome. in the ground. You know, it's awesome. Yeah, and um, I don't know how long ago, but they started a tradition where a good number of the band members wear Wayfair sunglasses even at night. <laughs> and it says pretty, and I noticed they were doing it again yeah. as the camera panned across the band in the stand, still doing that. And the other thing I remember, if you're if you're an old Fleetwood Mac fan like I am, that's how old I am. But um, they produced, they had a tour called the Dance, 1997, and they produced a DVD of it. And they performed. It was in Southern California. I don't think it was on USC's campus, but the song Tusk, mm-hmm. the the famed. Fleetwood Mac song. It included, uh, came out as somewhat of a surprise to the audience, a good number of the USC marching band is featured in the song, The Tusk, in the video. And it is awesome. They come out with their Wayfair glasses on inside, you know. Mm -hmm. And they got the, looks like the drum line, a lot of the, the horn section and so forth. But how cool would that be if you're a band member in college to play with Fleetwood Mac at the time? I mean, they're still a pretty well-known band, but 1997, they weren't too far removed from their peak of fame Yeah, uh, in the mid-late 70s. So, but anyhow, it's pretty cool. So I, I just like their, their songs and their, their band and their traditions, and certainly the, I guess it's a Trojan, supposed to be a Trojan, comes out on the white horse with a spear. It's pretty cool, yeah. you have to admit. Chief Osceola in Florida State comes out. You know, that, similar yeah, deal. That's pretty. It's pretty that's cool. Pretty awesome. Yeah. Of course, I know the left. They want them to stop with all that stuff. But you know, I think they actually checked with the with the various tribal entities down there. And said, "No, we love it. We get." And they think they make money off of it as well, yeah. if I'm not mistaken. But oh my gosh, it's always the left ideologues, these elitists that always seem to presuppose and think on behalf of others that they just assume or feel oppressed by this kind of stuff. Just the new the thing hell is, uh, is they're, they're praising the acts of the Chinese government in su- suppressing the COVID protesters. How crazy is that going on? I, is- I literally saw several accounts, like Twitter accounts, praising China and their reaction to a COVID outbreak. They essentially set up these camps and put all the people in the camps, and they bring you your food, and they bring you your water, and you're not allowed to leave that camp. And, of course, China, uh, some citizens are protesting against it, yeah. which is causing all kind of ramifications. But there's people on the left that are saying, you know what? China's doing it right. Oh, my gosh. Well, it was uh, – is it Klaus Schwab? 
of the uh, World Economic Forum. I, I think I got that. I think he's yeah. like a Bond supervillain. Yeah, exactly. Klaus Schwab. <laughs> I'm Klaus Schwab. <laughs> and he's interviewed the other day, and he literally, in his interview to one of the reporters, references, cites China, and holds them up as like a model nation for the world. At the, at the uh, World Economic Forum, or I, I may have it wrong, whatever the hell. The, I, I don't pay attention to it because it's really just symbolic. It's kind of a joke. They all go over there, all the big uh, economic powerhouse nations, and, and it's just turned into a big leftist fest where all they talk about is climate change and reparations. But he Schwab actually said that. Oh, yeah, China, we really need to look at them. Oh, you mean killing people because they don't agree with the government? Uh, yeah, that's real good. Or, or literally sending uh, brown shirts, if you will, out to the factories and in the streets of the towns to make sure people are holed up in their house. Have you seen the video of the BBC journalist getting beat? Oh, I have not. Yeah, there was a BBC journalist that, I don't know how he was over there, but he was filming, I guess, some of the uh, conditions and of these tents, these um, camps, basically, yeah. COVID camps, and uh, the police got after him. They started beating him. Well, somebody had a, their camera out and videoed him getting beat. The BBC obviously has come out and said that they condemn all this. I don't know what's going to happen with it, but hmm. they were literally just kicking him like five on one. Well, I know that the shutdowns of uh, much of the economy of China due to COVID because they're still pursuing this zero COVID policy, which is not working and never going to work, let's be honest, uh, is wreaking havoc on the markets today. You were just talking about, uh, in our little meeting, you ordered an iPhone, right? Mm -hmm. And and their delays. And so Apple is down today uh, a good bit, and uh, the investment community is all up in arms because they fear that Apple won't be able to uh, produce the inventory necessary to meet demand. And, of course, that affects revenue and profit, and it's because so much of the assembly and manufacturing occurs in China. And uh, is it just to try to uh, manufacture at lower cost because the labor so much less, that's a good bit of the reason for that. But nonetheless, there are concerns that they won't be able to meet demand because China, the government, the communist Chinese regime, has shut down the whole dead gum economy. Yep. Once again, here we go again. It hasn't worked yet. So that's causing problems. Uh, that is wreaking havoc on markets today, and because the fear is there, that's going to proliferate throughout the economy of China. And so much of, as we all know, what we consume here in this country is made over there. And by the way, it was... It was the likes of McKinsey and some of these other left, sort of left-leaning consulting firms that that pushed much of uh, the ma- uh, major American companies to consider offshoring their manufacturing. Pharmaceuticals was one of their big clients that they did that for. Now we're sort of paying the price for that, as we learned during COVID. We're taking a break right here. We are in the Element Well Studios. We got Captain Chris Turnipseed. Director of the Mississippi Highway Patrol Public Affairs Division coming on at 11.05 to recap the busy Thanksgiving travel weekend. Stay with us. We're coming right back.
here on Super Talk Mississippi. We are back in the Element Wealth Studios, Midday Super Talk Mississippi. Don't forget Middays and Good Things with Rebecca Turner will be live Wednesday in downtown Cleveland celebrating their beautiful display of 50 Nights of Lights, where over a million lights transform Cleveland into a winter wonderland this holiday season. Now through January 1st, You can view the lights by walking down the trail or by driving, and it's all free. And then on Friday, we got an all-day remote. Mississippi Farm Bureau celebrates 100 years, and Super Talk Mississippi will be there. Join the Super Talk Mississippi team as we broadcast live from the Mississippi Trademark on Friday as we celebrate 100 years of Faith, Family, and Farm Bureau. So, going to be on the road a couple of days uh, this week, Will. That trademark is really a nice place. It is really, really nice. Good uh, congratulations to Commissioner Andy Gibson and others involved in making that a reality. What an improvement over that other building, and we needed it big time. That other building was honestly getting so dilapidated, it was becoming an embarrassment. Mm-hmm. Uh, but now I think we have a showcase facility. Just want folks, if you hadn't been there, you really ought to go see it. And it's and it's getting utilized quite a, quite a bit, which is really really good. I, um, you know, I announced on Friday. I shared with the audience that uh, we lost our sweet precious brute, our family black lab, uh, ten and a half years, and had to put him down Thanksgiving evening uh, during the egg bowl. So we stayed back because we took him to the vet Wednesday when we could detect that he wasn't doing well, and they recommended him staying in and recommended that when the vet showed up at this 24-hour clinic the following day, Thanksgiving Day, at, at uh, 5 p.m., uh, let the vet do a sonogram on what the tech had, had felt was a mass in the abdomen, uh, Brute's abdomen, and he did, and he came back and said, yeah, it's it's uh, it's bleeding. Uh, you can detect that in the sonogram, and that's why his blood work showed that he was anemic, which he'd never been, and also his white blood cell count was up. He'd, he'd spurred some infection. And anyhow, he said, you know, we could uh, certainly do surgery and, and attempt to remove the growth, but we won't really know the extent of, of it, the spread, until we, uh, we open up. Um, and... And if we can remove it and perhaps uh, have it sent off for a pathology report and determine that it's benign, it, it could buy them a year and a half or so. But if we get in and it looks like it's spread and, and really not operable and, and uh, no cure or treatment available, I recommend that you put him down. Or you could just put him down now. I mean, that literally was a choice. And he was... Very, very frank and very concise about that. And so, and we were, my my two adult kids and my wife and I, and we decided, well, let's try the surgery. And we knew it was a long shot. And he explained the risk, you know, at his age may not, just like a human, you know, may not make it through. And so a couple hours later, it seemed like it was about the third quarter. So we were at the house and he called and said, yeah, it's, it looks like it's invaded his liver and and really spread throughout, mm-hmm. and it's, it, I recommend you put him down while he's asleep. 
not attempt to wake him up because there was obviously a side of us that said, gosh, we'd like to just say our final goodbyes. And he just said, you know, it, it would be so painful for him to to um, oh. try to push him through recovery. So we made the hard decision uh, to put him down. And uh, we certainly, we're, we're dealing with that and missing that. But we, um, I got nostalgic for some reason on Saturday. The weather was kind of yucky. Couldn't play golf. And just feeling a bit depressed about it. And made the decision, probably not a wise one, won't be the first time I haven't made wise decisions, to travel to my old neighborhood growing up. I don't know why I started thinking about my childhood. And my old neighborhood is off of Bowling Street in West Jackson. It is, uh, it, it's kind of a horseshoe sort of shape, two-horseshoe loop, if you can kind of uh, picture that. And it is um, where French Elementary School rest. I think that school was built in the 50s, if I'm not mistaken. I know my, my parents bought the house there in 1953 when they moved here from Louisiana. My father on the GI Bill, 6500 bucks for the house. And and so I decided to travel over there, and I took the route Woodrow Wilson all the way from um, 55, where you exit onto Woodrow Wilson there, to the to the west, all the way to Bowling Street, where it it terminates, and you go up about a block or so to the north, take a left, and you're in this subdivision, this neighborhood, and went through there. It was depressing, man. It's a war zone. I had no idea. I mean, think about everything you've seen around the capital city of Jackson that you see, and it and you, and you just kind of are shocked. Multiply that by 100. That's what the... I'm going to say 30 or so houses in this little loop. It was just depressing. And, of course, me driving through there in a late model vehicle, I'm sure that called attention. I only saw two people. The houses were inhabited. They weren't boarded up. But the yards, the front yards, couldn't, if you could call them that, the front of the house, piles of garbage and and uh, vehicles upon cinder blocks, maybe one that had tires on it in each. I mean, it's sad, honestly. And I'm not I'm not being critical here. I'm just reporting, just sharing what I saw. And there were two individuals that were in the front of one of the houses, and and they looked at me, and I know they thought, "What the heck's this guy doing here?" And the thing about it is, when you go through that loop, there's only one way out. There's like an entrance, and then it splits up, forms a loop. And I honestly thought, I wonder if they're going to be waiting for me on the other end. It's just being paranoid more than anything. Went by, took a photo of my old childhood home, which is by far still the best on the street. That's only because my father and some friends, when I was probably five or six years old, added about 400 square feet to it to make it about 1,100 square foot house. Mm-hmm. And, and also had installed brick. It was asbestos siding was the common exterior finish back then. And most of the houses still have that all chipped up and kind of shattered, you know, but he had he had uh installed he and some friends did it themselves some um sort of old brick. Still there. 
And there were a couple of potholes that I swear were 20 feet wide and three feet deep, it seemed. Um, I may be exaggerating a little bit. And then, sadly, the French Elementary School, which is really, was a really nice campus, you know, growing up. It's all surrounded by fence, boarded up. It's not in use anymore. But it uh, two things about it, I guess, that crossed my mind. First, how incredibly blessed I have been, as I think are the people that are listening to us, watching us right now. I think, you know, and it, you may have a different standard for what are blessings, but certainly in the conditions that I think we and most people listening here are fortunate to live in, a step up considerably from those conditions. And I, and I felt so helpless, like I want to help, I want to do something, I don't know exactly what to do. So, and then I thought, well, this is just not right. I mean, this look, this doesn't even look like America. That That's what hit me. It's like, no, this is what you would expect to see in a third world country. How, how did we get here? What, what, what's... And, of course, I know what the left would say. The left would say it's systemic racism and oppression and, you know, and the, and the white man has, has uh, caused this and all that sort of stuff, which I don't agree with and I don't believe, because if that were the case, then why are there so many successful minorities in, mm-hmm. uh, in our state even, right, which is t- typically looked at from folks on the outside – as one that is still awash in racism. And I'm not saying racism doesn't exist, but to suggest that it's more prevalent here than it is elsewhere is just, just not true. It's disingenuous. And I, I live now, very fortunate, very blessed, in a, a gated, upscale neighborhood, and right next to me is a beautiful home that is the residence of a beautiful black family whose children attend the most expensive private school in the state. Great. That's fantastic. I celebrate with them. But obviously they were able, whatever barriers the left thinks there are, they were able to overcome them. What's their secret? Maybe we need to find out and emulate that, share that. But it's not right what I saw. That's not just not right. And I, I'm not suggesting I have an answer to it. I'm just pointing out that... It's in our midst, just a few miles from, as a crow flies, you know, where we live. And it's, anyhow, I honestly took my life in my hands. I feel like going because it's crime-ridden as well, and I look like an easy pickings there. But survive to tell about it, as my friends say. I just want to share that. Coming right back on Midday, stay with us. Talk.fm. You're listening to Middays with Gerard. Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi.
I can think about is Apollo 13 when I hear that song. Because they played it famously, as you recall, yeah. in the song on the little pocket recorder. N- Norman around. Greenbaum. Norman Greenbaum, the artist, exactly. <laughs> How perfect was that for uh, for the motif there with Apollo 13 You know, I've around. never seen Apollo 13. Are you kidding me? I have never seen it. That's one of the best movies ever. Uh, seriously. It is uh, it's riveting, and it's... Uh, I remember it when I was a kid. It appears to be a very accurate account. And Wasn't it's, there a Mississippi connection? Yeah, Fred Hayes. That's yeah, right. astronaut Fred Hayes who passed away two or three years ago from Biloxi. Uh huh. And yeah, sure was. And in fact, I believe it was he who fired up the song on his little pocket recorder. <laughs> yeah, he was in the in the capsule there. And it weightless, of course, no gravity, and he's like touching the recorder, which was just floating in the air, spinning around, playing Spirit of the Sky. I believe he turned it up for uh, when there were live uh, television, and and there was a television camera featuring him playing it, and so that was being broadcast huh. live at the time. Yeah, for him, however many miles up in the air there, pretty cool. Robert and Clinton on the C Spire tax line, which of course is 601-879-4395, says the USC band originally played on the Salt Tusk. Well, I didn't know that. I didn't know they were featured in the recording, is, is what Robert's saying. Appreciate you letting me know that, Robert. I I just thought they showed up for the live <laughs> performance of the song uh, in the 1997 The Dance production there, which was awesome, by the way. Let's see. Uh, yeah, Gary, I, I don't know what to do about it, man. You 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 send me a text every single time about fifty nine, and I passed it on. I I've done all I can do. Gary is uh, always lets us know that folks drive really fast on fifty nine. We got Captain Turnip Seat coming in today, and I appreciate that. But uh, I don't know what else to do. I have uh, I've passed on. I've shared your sentiments there. Now I will say when I'm on it, I don't see it. I don't see people going that fast. I don't go that fast, and I'm not getting like blown by by other vehicles. And now I'm not on it a lot. I don't know six, seven times a year, mostly headed to remotes, honestly, or uh, maybe to New Orleans, which I hadn't been to in I guess a couple of years. But well, yeah, last year Sugar Bowl. Mm-hmm. So Stephen Gulfport says sorry to hear about your lost yard. Really appreciate that, uh, Steve. Um, you know, these these pets like that, they do become a member of your family. There's no doubt. And we're so we are uh, blessed to have had him in our life for 10 plus years and it's sad that it occurred on Thanksgiving, but you know, Julie said we were just about to sit down to eat. Julie actually said, you know, Brute would have wanted us to eat. You don't think about a dog in that fashion, but of course he's always laying nearby hoping to get uh, a little morsel from the Waiting table. on the weak person. Well, of <laughs> yeah. And like so many uh, dogs, animals, that especially if you ever do feed them from the table, then they know, right? And and we – so we'll have to admit we were in our weakness did. And he started kind of grumbling at you and growling, you know, if you weren't paying attention to him. Or he'd come over and, like, lick your feet or something while you're, while you're eating to make sure I'm down here. And once everything was cleaned up and he'd kindly 
kind of uh, concluded that I don't think I'm going to get anything else. Then he'd go eat his food. But it was <laughs> always secondary. They all develop these personalities, these habits like this. It's what's so cool uh, about dogs, I think. Let's see. Tesla's song, What You Give, was written for his dog. I'm thinking about it now, says Michael in Brookhaven. Carolyn Startbull says, sorry about your dog. I can relate. I have a 15-year-old dog with Cushing's disease and will eventually have to put him down to best dog I've ever had, a pointer mix born in the Startbull Animal Shelter. Wow, thanks for sharing that. And, uh, Carolyn, God bless in, in dealing with that. Fred Hayes is still alive. Okay, well, somebody else, uh, I, my, pardon me for getting that wrong. Who else was on the crew there, though, that... Um, passed away. I swear one of those passed away. Um, I don't know. So I may have that wrong. Jim Swigert died in 82. Okay. Yeah. Fred Hayes was... Uh, and yeah. he and Lovell's still alive. Too, okay. Well, so. Anyhow, well, I, I got it. I got it wrong on that. Apologize for that. Fred, uh, of course, was... had a bladder infection. Remember that when, yeah. and that's actually featured uh, in the in the movie, which is kind of cool. Wow, ninety three hours of flying time. It says sixty two hundred hours in a jet. So I apologize for that. So, I, there's some someone that I had to figure out passed away that's affiliated associated with Apollo thirteen. So yeah, but he was born in Biloxi, uh, Biloxi native. Pretty cool. Let's see. What are you saying here, Thomas? It's because of a lack of... Oh, well, I was talking about spinning around through the old neighborhood. Thomas and Greenwood says it's because of a lack of Medicaid expansion. Thomas, I know that's your that's your new cause, man. I have saw your stuff on social media, Medicaid expansion, and I, I'm going to ask again. I know you always like to fashion yourself as... Uh, as a as a conservative and one who has conservative bona fides, and you typically apply your conservative standard because there is no consensus of what that is, in my view, um, to everybody. So I'm going to ask again: When you're going to start promoting and calling on Mississippi and Mississippi government to exit base Medicaid? It doesn't, to me, make sense for anyone to oppose Medicaid expansion but embrace and not speak out against base Medicaid, which costs the state just under a billion dollars a year. A billion. It is the number two line item behind education in the general fund budget. In our six billion dollar budget it consumes roughly a billion of it uh, another four and a half nearly five billion comes from the federal government literally so and and presently we get the highest federal match in the country that's because we have the lowest per capita income in the country it's based on that we may be 49th we kind of go back and forth with new mexico but so that's how the federal match is determined, and that's just the – so it's primarily an expense borne by the federal government, and presently we're under an enhanced match, which was enacted as part of the COVID uh, relief to states, and that is scheduled 
I think to end here pretty soon, I don't think it's been extended. In fact, it may end at the end of this month in a couple of days here, the, the uh, enhanced federal match, which is, I think, 6.5%, which puts, up, puts us at nearly 80% of Medicaid cost being covered by the federal government, the state picks up the other 20. Talking about base Medicaid. It's a it's nearly a $6 billion program. Medicaid, when you count the federal and the state match, is as big as the entire Mississippi general fund budget. Wow. And it's no surprise, there are 840,000 Mississippians on Medicaid, and that's without expanding. Those are just the coverage groups that qualify under standard base Medicaid. That's without expansion, which is is thought to uh, extend Medicaid to some hundred fifty to two hundred thousand able-bodied adults, which are not eligible for Medicaid base Medicaid. Only children, indigent, elderly, uh, disabled, blind. Pregnant mothers; those are the, in general, the cover coverage groups under base Medicaid. So, I, I just wonder why folks aren't speaking out against our participation in base Medicaid. Why don't if you're against Medicaid expansion? And I'm not saying I'm for it. I'm just wondering if you're folks like Thomas that are uh, very outwardly and outspoken. Uh, in opposition of Medicaid expansion, that's fine. Why aren't you? Why don't you have the same level of enthusiasm for opposing base Medicaid? That costs almost a billion dollars a year, base Medicaid of Mississippi taxpayer money. Where are you, Thomas? When are you gonna start speaking out? You you need to write your senator, and in my view, to be consistent. And uh, your rep and the statewide leaders and say, we got to get out of Medicaid. We'd be the only state in the country that would do that. Anyhow, um, we are up against a break right here on Middays. Another segment in this hour, and then Captain Chris Turnipseed will join us after the news break at the top of the hour. Stay with us. Super Talk Outdoors, by the way, with Ricky Matthews coming up at noon today. Stay with us. You're listening to Middays with Gerard here on Super Talk Mississippi. Back everyone to midday Super Talk Mississippi on the ceasefire text line. Yeah, I know I, I blew it, guys. I said Fred Hayes. I don't know where I got that from. He's still alive. So the I'm, actor that played Hayes died okay. a couple of years ago. Bill Paxton. That's that's maybe where I got that from. Yeah, yeah. my apologies. I conflated that. So glad to know that. But did learn that do, doing a little research on the break that of course he is from Biloxi, he's a Mississippian. So he was among the three astronauts that traveled on Apollo 13 and attended Perk, Gulf Coast Community College in Perkinston. Mm-hmm. The Perkinson campus went on 
to uh, attend the University of Oklahoma. I thought it was pretty cool. So we do have a Mississippi connection. You really should watch the movie. It's very yeah. entertaining. Very well done. Uh, Tom Hanks, I believe. And uh, Kevin Bacon. Kevin Bacon, too. Who has been in this studio before. Yeah, sure has. Mm. Yeah, exactly. Uh, it was uh, excellent cast. Uh, excellent cast. And uh, very entertaining movie, though. And just a very instructive from a historical perspective. It's That was America, you know, trying to get, of course, to the moon. And this was all leading up to that. And really, really crazy sequence of events with Apollo 13. Of course, the superstitious folks would point to the number 13. It was doomed from the get-go, yeah. right? And there was, of course, leading up to that in, in testing, uh, I remember this, there was a fire, you know, in the tower that killed astronauts, couldn't get them out. I don't remember exactly what the cause of the fire that ignited it, but that was a sad deal. Uh, are you familiar with that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the other one that's really good, it leads up to this, is The Right Stuff, which is maybe one About of my favorite. the favorites. selection of the Yeah, astronauts. just the formation of the space program and the selection. It, and it's it's got some comical uh, parts of it as well, just sort of humorous, kind of tongue-in-cheek humor, you know. And it's, yeah. it's actually it's very, very well It's really a fascinating time because it was a time where you kind of rooted for America. Right. You know, that's exactly right. You were, were all rooting for it. it to happen, and um, you know the whole space race thing. I, yeah. I'm reading a, or listening to an audio book right now about the Cold War, and it's pretty fascinating. It, they talked to some of these uh, people who defected from the Soviet Union and came over to America, and one of them, they it was a pilot who had defected, and he he actually brought a jet over that the military huh. was interested in, and so the CIA gets him and they take him to. Um, they didn't say which city, but they just took him to an American city, and that's where they were staying. And one day, they like took him out to like go eat at a restaurant, and they took him to a buffet. Right. He was so stunned that the fact that you could get up and get two plates of food it blew him away. And they, the CIA hand this was in the mid seventies, by the way. Yeah. The CIA handlers were so amazed by this, they took him to a supermarket, and he was. He thought, he later wrote that he thought that it was a psychop. He thought that this was a, a something that the CIA had come up with <laughs> to, like, convince him, you know, of how great America is. Because he really believed that America was starving, that the Soviets were ahead, that the Soviets were – of course, they didn't believe that, you know, that America had landed on the moon. He thought all that was, you know, that was propaganda from America. There's no way that could have possibly <laughs> happened. He thought that the Soviets were so far ahead right. that just going to a buffet and then going to a supermarket convinced him that he had made the right decision to defect to yep. go over to the Allies uh, or to the U.S. Um, that it was really fascinating, but it was a time where you know you kind of rooted for America in the whole space race and all that that time, which is sadly gone away in some ways. And and the Apollo 13 uh, uh, incident, that ordeal, same deal. Everybody was on the edge of their seats and, you know, was getting reports because it was very touchy. And uh, it was really, there was a concern that they weren't making it home mm-hmm. and they were going to burn up in space and reentry. And Have you ever uh, read uh, Richard Nixon's letter that he wrote in case 
the which one landed on the moon was it um, that actually landed on the moon with Neil, Neil Armstrong, Buzz Aldrin? Yeah, I can't mm-hmm. remember which Apollo mission that was, but um, he wrote two letters. He wrote one in case they made it and yep. got home safely, and he wrote one in case they died. And it didn't come out until years later, um, the letter that he wrote in case they died. It was very poignant. and um, kind of. I kind of remember something about that. Yeah. yeah. That, that whole time is just so fascinating. I think it was Apollo 11. Yeah. Maybe. comes to mind, 1969. I remember it. I was out, when I learned about it, I was out in the yard playing baseball <laughs> as a youngster. Andy and Jackson says, sad when you go back where you grew up and you feel like an outsider. Yeah, I totally agree. He says, a couple of months ago, a friend of mine wanted to see where I grew up in South Jackson. Took them on the tour. Same thing, depressing. I grew up on Maryland Drive, which is my street that I was talking about. Yeah, it's depressing to go through there now. It's incredible. William in Greenville says, China is a model that Canada needs to follow. They're moving towards that, aren't they? Aren't they, uh, William Trudeau? He's kind of a card-carrying socialist that I think would embrace communism. People may say that's hyperbole. I don't think it is. Time for a break here on Middays. Coming back with Captain Chris Turnipseed. Stay with us. And now... The talk that keeps Mississippi talking. That's what I like listening. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Here on Super Talk Mississippi. We are back in the Element Well Studios on Midday Super Talk Mississippi. During National Family Caregivers Month, be sure to visit aarp.org slash ms or the AARP Mississippi Facebook page to find out to find info and resources to help you on your caregiving journey. And once again, of course, we're in the Element Well Studios, the markets not faring too well today. That's why you need to go to elementwealth.com or call 601-957-6006 to let Element Wealth help you find your balance between income, growth, and guarantees. We're waiting to get connected with uh, Captain Turnipseed. We'll get him on as soon as Will is able to make that happen. Yeah, so the markets are reacting negatively today because China's just shutting the whole dang country down, and the fears from the investment community is that we're not going to be able to produce enough stuff to sell. And that, of course, impacts revenue and uh, uh, by association profit, of course, and that's not a good thing. And the markets say, oh, we're, good. we're moving back. But hopefully we'll get a resolution. China just needs to open up. We've got Captain Chris Turnipsey joining us now, the director of the Mississippi Highway Patrol Public Affairs Division. Captain, all right, tell us how we did over the weekend, sir. Well, good to be on with you, first of all, Gerard. I hope you and yours and everybody there at Super Talk had a great uh, Thanksgiving. Yes, sir. Uh, we fared, well, about the same as we did last year. We were up on fatals this year. Uh, about one, we had five fatal crashes last year. We had six this time, so that's always, you know, always leading in, I guess, with the bad news there. But that's that's probably the worst part of it. Uh, pretty busy holiday, you know. We had some weather and some rain, uh, as you can see this weekend. It slowed, maybe didn't have quite as much traveling 
uh, this year as you did last time. People trying to stay out of the weather. It's kind of hard to tell what it was going to do. It looks like we're going to get some more crazy uh, weather this week. Uh, but we ended up writing just to share, uh, just a tad over uh, nine thousand citations over the over the holiday period, which is uh, pretty similar to what we did last year, uh, right there uh, within a, a few hundred. And your favorite, in your favorite uh, category, <laughs> uh, six hundred forty-five occupant restraint violations uh, over the Thanksgiving holiday. Unbelievable. We, <laughs> We've been round and round on that one there, though. I have to, I have to make sure I add that one to the title there <laughs> let you know. And locked up uh, 172 uh, impaired drivers over the holiday period, 172 drunks or impaired drivers of uh, the Mississippi Highway Patrol uh, took off the road this weekend. 212 total crashes over the, like I said, over the, over the span of those days with, you know, like I said, six of them being uh, fatal crashes, which is, is, of course, the bad news. Yeah, and of course we had uh, a little weather, at least on on Saturday, that uh, I suspect contributed uh, to some of the crashes and some of the issues uh, on the roads. Uh, I would I would think, at least, uh, Captain, do you typically see an increase when when motorists are out in slick conditions like that and rain? Definitely, definitely. Uh, Wet weather, you know, uh, you know. Of course, you any anything frozen is going to be the worst. We have yeah. frozen weather, but then rain, rain weather will be, you know, will be a high ranking number two. You know, we uh, we got a little saying right here. When you know, when it, when it starts raining, a little bit of moisture falls on the roads. We go ahead and uh, get our raincoats on and put our hat covers on. So we know we're fixing to uh, be out here standing on the side of the roadway somewhere uh, at, at a crash. It's just. That's one of the days that we we know is going to be a, a busy day for sure. Yeah, uh, traffic, uh, weather related traffic accidents. Wow, the the seat restraint uh, citations. What'd you say? Six hundred forty. Six forty five. This six forty five. But 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 here's the good news. <laughs> if there is, uh, it, it might be just a flip of the coin. But it was seven hundred and seventy four. Huh. Last year, so we're down over a hundred this time. Okay, like I said, that, that that could have been, you know, just the difference in, in, in people traveling or what have you. But you know, what any news is good news, George. Yeah, about fifteen percent, and and you know, as I always say, anytime you report this, I'm always astonished. But that's just the ones you see and know about and, and catch. <laughs> yeah, that's a hundred percent, a hundred percent. They're correct on that. We can't be everywhere, and yeah. I'm sure if we took a mind just to just to, to go out and strictly write, you know, non-restrained yep. uh, citations, it would be it would be a lot more than that. But you know, as as it had, you know, as times have it, there's other, a lot of other things out there we have to focus on, and a lot of other uh, issues we have to have to worry about at the same time. So we can't all, all our focus should not be on those occupant restraints at all times. Yeah, certainly understand that. All right, so what what uh, do we look forward to here from a, a, a driving perspective and travel perspective in the next few weeks leading up to Christmas? What does that typically look like, Cap? Well, there'll be there'll probably be I would say a slight lull a little bit. Uh, you know, kind of it'll get back to pre holiday period uh, pre holiday period traveling, but it's it's going to start quickly picking back up the closer we get you know we're fixing to be in december here and the closer we get uh to the christmas holiday which will of course we'll, we'll have another enforcement period there 
Uh, your weekends, I mean, I'm already, you know, just wasn't even really doing out for myself. I'm just trying to pick up a few uh, necessary items for myself and make, can barely get in, in and out of the stores this weekend. So people are out and they're shopping, and uh, I, I would imagine weekends from here out are going to be pretty busy. Uh, from here on, people uh, trying to get ready, pick up those uh, those gifts, pick up those decorations, you know, going and doing. So traffic's probably going to be a steady a steady build all the way up until, of course, you got New Year's coming after that, and then hopefully things will slow back down a little bit uh, until, you know, until spring or summer rolls back around. It, it's never, you know, you never really can predict exactly what the traffic uh, situations are going to be to a science, but just from how we look at them in the past, you know, holidays and, and big events are usually uh, indicators of when we're going to have a higher higher traffic volumes. Is uh, How do you compare travel around the Christmas holiday versus Thanksgiving, which is uh, typically the one where there's just more volume of traffic? Well, traditionally, Thanksgiving is supposed to be, you know, even nationwide, Thanksgiving is supposed to be one of the one of the busiest travel days of the year. Yeah. Uh, I would say as a trooper out here on the road, uh, working traffic, running radar, you know, checking license and all, you probably can't tell from, from that aspect of it because you're, you're, you're going to be pretty busy either way. But just looking at it probably from, you know, 30,000 feet, they say Thanksgiving is the busiest one. I don't see a lot more people travel on Thanksgiving. I've read, you know, I've just read articles and read opinions and things, but, to me, they look pretty simple. I don't have the Christmas holiday uh, period really to pull up here to look at the numbers. I'd have to go do some digging through some, some files, but we can, you know, we come back around Christmas holiday. We, we can we can compare those, and I can get you a lot more uh, accurate uh, count. Just just all we can compare it with is citations. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. Other than that, we're just, it's just it's just a pretty pretty big gift. Yeah, I certainly understand that. Uh, Thanksgiving, I think, typically is considered the busiest travel period of the year. I, I know the airlines report that as well, more folks. And it could be just because so many uh, take off both Thursday and Friday and kind of make it a long weekend, and Christmas is is not usually that way. It's usually a single day. Some some folks do take off Christmas Eve. And, yeah, and sometimes it's on, you know, Christmas will be on the weekend, so that yeah. really helps. And yeah. that helps us as far as the travel period goes because you can really – you can really concise it into a, to a certain period there. You know, when you got these holidays that fall out, you know, on Tuesdays or Wednesdays during the week, then, you know, the longer the travel period is, you know, the more opportunities for people to get out and travel and you yeah. know, the more days they're going to take off work. So you're exactly right on that. Thanksgiving's always going to be on Thursday, so that's always going to be what it's going to be there. Yeah. Well, and this year, uh, to your point, Christmas is on a Sunday. It's on uh, I believe that's right. Yeah, Sunday, December 25th, and then New Year's Day, of course, always on the same day uh, of the week, It uh, no, uh, the 1st. I think I'm looking at that right, Will. Is, yep, that's it. Yep, is also on a Sunday. So, yeah, that – and I think also just in terms of uh, traffic patterns, uh, folks may – you may have some that are – that are focused on Christmas, some on New Year's, some for the whole week, and so it probably spreads it out a little bit more. Whereas Thanksgiving is one day, and it's it's more concentrated, and uh, that that could be the case. But and uh, so, what about staffing levels, uh, 
Captain, you always share that with us, and you told us before the weekend that it was pretty much all hands on deck. Got about 30 seconds left. Is that the same situation around Christmas, and how did everybody do? It will be. It'll be the same Christmas. It'll be all hands on deck. And, yeah. Uh, Right after the new year, you know, talking about all hands on deck. After the new year, uh, end of January, yep. uh, we're going to we're going to start another patrol school. So hopefully, we'll we'll get some more manpower to add to our staffing levels, which will definitely help make Mississippi uh, a safer place to travel. We're looking forward to that and add some new troopers to our ranks. Yeah, as always, Captain, appreciate you joining us and giving us an update. And and once again, we extend our gratitude to the men and women. Uh, state troopers in the state of Mississippi for keeping us safe on the roads out there. Thank you, sir. We'll talk soon. Thank you, Gerard. Have a great week, y'all. Talk to y'all soon. Yes, sir. We're coming right back in the Element Well Studios. Please stay with us. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Let's do this. On Super Talk Mississippi. Let's do Tom Sawyer by Rush, you know, is an old aspiring amateur drummer. <laughs> uh, sometimes I like to go out. Well, I follow some drumming sites um, on social media, YouTube, and there are some of these prodigies, you know, drumming drummer prodigies. And of course, the drummer for Rush, widely considered to be one Neil of the Perk. best. Yeah, Neil Perk. And and so there's a uh, there's all these these cover drummers individuals where they've got the music pumped in they're able to to um, suppress the drum track uh, with sophisticated equipment you know and software anyhow so there there's like an eight year old that covers that song it's <laughs> incredible he's like a a drumming prodigy that could barely reach the pedals you wow. know. Uh, but and that's a really really hard song to play on the drums for what it's worth. So we were just talking about the the situation with the hospitals in Mississippi. I've read I read one report said there are 111 hospitals, but the official registry in Mississippi official registry says there's there are uh, 122. But it, I don't know that that's splitting hairs a bit what the actual count is. But it's the rural hospitals that are they're most at risk, and that's because they they generally are providing the most uninsured care, and even in the insured care, most of that's not coming from private coverage. It's coming from Medicare and Medicaid, whose reimbursement rate is, is considerably below that of private insurance. So it's all about the balance and the mix of revenue that really determines the viability and uh, and just the net cash flow of these uh, these hospitals, and so on the ceasefire text line, 
the uh, we had we had a text here that said I would think North Sunflower Medical Center in Ruleville has the same percentage of uninsured care yet they are not going broke. I may be wrong, and so and that was just in response to us learning when we interviewed Mayor McAdams of Greenwood talking about the publicly owned Greenwood Lafleur facility that she stated on the show here, and I haven't verified it, folks. I'm just going by what she passed on that eighty percent eighty percent of their care was uncompensated. So you're providing services, and 80% of those services... Imagine if you ran a store, and 80% of your customers didn't pay. Well, what about, what about you work for a company, and you only got paid 20%? That's another way to... Individually, right? Yeah. So uh, I did a little research. I, I appreciate the, someone just calling our attention to it. I could not find an audited financial statement. Now, I only took a couple of minutes, but I did find the official audited financial statement of the North Sunflower Medical Center in Ruleville, not a very large facility. And this is the official uh, financial report from Watkins Ward and Stafford, which is actually a fairly large accounting firm that covers that part of the state. Well, that sort of uh, northeast Columbus uh, up through the the um, uh, northeast corner, Corinth, and so forth. Anyhow, they're they're a pretty well known and well established, reputable firm. And I'm looking. It turns out, it, uh, and I hope um, the listener that sent the text in is is still tuned in. So in 2018, they lost 8.8 million dollars. Mm. It's probably worse now. They have a net deficit. So the way, the, um, in accordance with the, the accounting standards for reports, balance sheet reports for entities such as this, uh, the net deficit is essentially the equity section, if you're familiar with that, on the balance sheet. It's just your accumulated equity. In this case, is, in this case they have an accumulated net deficit of $27 bucks. They're upside down. They're broke. They're effectively bankrupt. That's why Dr. Edney is saying and warning that we've got nearly half of the rural hospitals are at risk of totally shutting down. I'd be shocked if we find any of the 54 that are considered rural hospitals that are producing a positive cash flow. It just doesn't work. The economics just don't work. When you got an outsized amount of services being provided for which there's no revenue coming in. It doesn't work in any business. Now, I'm not promoting any particular solution here to those out there that are saying, well, Gerard's just just stumping for Medicaid expansion. I'm not even convinced that would fix it. And I'm not, honestly. I just know that folks go to the hospital and they're not going to say, no, we're not going to help you. They're just not going to do it. They're not going to turn them away. And if they participate in Medicare, which every one of them do, by law, they can't turn them away. Based on EMTALA, which is a law passed in 1986, signed by President Ronald Reagan. That's the truth. A lot of folks are shocked to hear that. You hear the medical folks, even on the program here, I've asked them, what about Emtala? Oh, man, they're, <laughs> they're all familiar with it because they know they have to abide by it. And basically, at a high level, what it says is if somebody shows up and they're sick, even if they can't pay, you've got to at least get them stabilized 
And I don't know what the clinical definition of that is. That's over my pay grade. But that costs money. It just does, whether they can pay or not. Otherwise, you can't participate in Medicare. Well, nobody's going to say we're dropping Medicare because that's where most of your care and your revenue comes from, though it's below private. So in Mississippi, we have an outsized amount of Medicare and Medicaid than we do private coverage as far as payors into the system. And I'm not defending all that. I'm just explaining the math, period. So, yeah, uh, turns out they're one of the hospitals, this North Sunflower Medical Center. I'm, I'm looking at the financial statement on my screen right now. 47 pages. It's a typical auditor's report. And yeah, it's a it they all look like this for the most part in the in the rural setting in uh in Mississippi and they ain't much better well, in the it's urban setting. open parentheses, huh? It's it's just it's a hard deal to make work. Yeah. We were talking this morning about in our meeting about Twitter and I just I have the opinion I'm not sure it makes it. It's a it's a bad business model. It's a flawed business model from the get-go. It's primarily driven source of revenue is advertising. And as you really know, as you already know, advertising, we're in that business, it's tough. It's competitive, very competitive. And it's um, it's also one of the first things, as you probably know, that companies have a tendency to cut when, when uh, their economic conditions are, are less than favorable. They just said, well, we can do without that. It's, and they ought to be doing the opposite, honestly, because... The good ones do. They get that. And they, and you know what happens is they take market share from the people who don't. It's exactly what happens. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm not, obviously, informing you of anything you don't already know. You've been in this business a lot longer than me, but it don't take a genius to figure out that's how it works. But I'm just saying that I have concerns about Twitter making it. I know Elon Musk has come in, and he's, you know holding no prisoners there, taking no prisoners there. And he's a he's a brilliant guy, and he spent $44 billion on this company. Well, actually, his lenders are in there with him. It's not his personal money. He collateralized it with his personal assets. But uh, I'm not sure, honestly, because a lot of these advertisers are bolting on him. They're not getting their money's worth. It's it's been headed in this direction for so a long time. What you're saying time. is that that model doesn't work just like this the rural hospital model with the way it's currently going. The rural hospital situation has been in this condition for years. This isn't anything new. I recall about four years ago, pre-pandemic, pre this ridiculous spike in in uh, nursing costs, where nurses. And that's just because so many nurses said, I'm, I'm out. I'm, get, I'm done with the nursing business. And they moved on to other occupations, uh, other jobs. And so it's got this huge crunch of labor. And all these folks are out there trying to hire from the same pool. And so it's, a, it's an employee's market. Right? It's just simple demand and supply. And that's just ratcheted up pay. And those numbers don't work. And, but they haven't necessarily increased reimbursement from the payors, which would be Medicare, Medicaid, and private coverage. It's just a big old mess, and I'm not suggesting I got the solution to it. I'm just sharing what the financial realities are, and I know Thomas is all about 
Medicaid expansion. He wants to say that you just could cut the overhead and you know make all this work. And he sent us a text here. We'll get we'll get to it uh, after the break here. Middays is in the Element Well studio. Stay with us. to get started today is with Gerard Gibbert it is on. on Super Talk Mississippi. everyone to Midday Super Talk Mississippi. We are in the Element Well Studios. Going to be in Cleveland, Mississippi on Wednesday. And that will be for the 50 Nights of Lights. Looking forward to that. Also, uh, Will, oh, yeah, we've had some questions about the weather. And uh, there are, the forecast does call for some uh, rather stormy weather moving through the state of Mississippi tomorrow. We've got an eye on that. We will, of course, be here in Jackson in the studio tomorrow, headed up to Cleveland tomorrow night, Wednesday, for that broadcast. But, yeah, we are concerned about the weather moving yeah. through. It, it does appear that the uh, more enhanced risk is uh, covers an area that is more along the river. Uh, and in the Delta and up through the Memphis, uh, Mid-South area. And then as you move kind of diagonally across the state uh, through the central part down to the southeast part of the state, less of a chance. But nonetheless, we're expecting cold front to push some rather nasty weather through the area tomorrow, and we are certainly concerned about that. And we'll be keeping an eye on that. It wouldn't surprise me if during our broadcast tomorrow that'll be a topic of discussion. For sure. So we pray that uh, it moves through without uh, any... People don't think about tornadoes during the cooler months, but that typically is the case. Yeah. You know, I can remember a lot of December tornadoes. Yeah, that's absolutely true. So we so anyhow, we got our eye on it. That's the main thing. And we will be informing you here about that. And hoping that it just moves through uneventful. Gosh, Lee, we've, we've had our share of bad weather. Uh, from not too long ago, we had uh, floods in central Mississippi, August, right? It caused the water yeah. system to shut down in Jackson. State got involved to rectify that situation. But it just seems like we've had more than our share. We, we were spared any serious hurricanes. Florida, unfortunately, was not this year, though. There was a, a prediction, as there all, always seems to be from the National Weather Service, the Hurricane Center, expect a very active season and major storms. I don't think it quite materialized that way, but Ian that 
that uh, swept across the eastern coast of Florida, western coast of Florida, pardon me, was really, really bad and uh, wreaked havoc on Fort Myers and in that area as well. So, But we're watching. Sam from Mount Hermon says, good morning, Gerard. It sounds like Thomas from Greenwood thinks that all things can be fixed, just like a pen, but just a pen, just like Biden with his executive orders. Well, I see what Thomas has to say. He has sent us quite a bit of information. So have you glanced through Taxpayers Channel's coverage of GLH? I can't find any managers or admins cut, and that confirms what my MIL, I don't know what that is says, who's a good thing we provided subsidized internet to the rural areas instead of health care, right? I have to assume it's mismanaged since the board decides to spend all their time in executive session when they meet rather than being transparent. Now all the big dogs are there, so it's blatantly obvious that this is going to be the issue that they used to carry Medicaid expansion in 2023. So I would just ask the question again, Thomas. How many businesses... Do you think, or let me ask you, let me phrase it differently. How viable is any entity from an economic perspective when only 20% of their services are compensated? I mean, I don't care what the overhead is at the admin level. I don't see how that works in any business. Maybe you have some magic formula. Maybe you have some experience in running a business that was only compensated for 20% of, of what it of the services it supplied, or even product, for that matter. could be a combination of the two, but how does that work? Just curious. Do you, have you done some financial statements that shows how a company – I mean, certainly if you could charge enough for whatever that product or service is, you could absorb the losses uh, from uncompensated care. And in Mississippi, that's estimated to be about $600 million bucks a year, uncompensated care. Mm-hmm. So, and that's just because we have a lot of folks who aren't insured. And even when they are insured with Medicare and Medicaid, which is accounts for most Mississippians with coverage, those programs reimburse at a, quite a lower rate than uh, does private insurance. And that causes problems. It's actually below cost by most industry financial calculations. Now, you could certainly get wonky about how to calculate costs. That could be a little subjective, and I can tell you from business experience, even in my industry, computing costs of delivery of services, there's no consensus. I could line up five CPAs, and they'd all give you a different answer. And I did, by the way, (laughs) and you just have to kind of run with whatever makes sense. But that's sort of besides the point. It doesn't... It really is not um, an answer to the situation where most of the care is being uncompensated. He says, if it's not viable, why not let it shut? Why not let it shut down? I don't think a local hospital is a right. Sure, uh, Thomas, that, and that may be ultimately what happens. But what happens, Thomas, when you're riding through one of these areas and you get into a car accident? And that's that's the concern. And Doctor Ed, and you die. Uh, right, and Dr. Edney of the Department of Health, his report indicates that about half of the state's 54 rural hospitals, so of, of the 122 or somewhere between 110 and 122, whatever that figure is, about um, less than half of those, a little less than half of those are rural. But given the state, is primarily a rural state, yeah. so that stands to reason. 
he estimates that about half of those are at risk of, of closing, like in the short term. I, I would even hazard a guess that the vast majority of them are cash flow negative. Just can't, can't make the numbers work. And I thought for some time, this isn't really a function of Medicaid expansion. That's where everybody wants to take the discussion. I thought that just from a, just looking at reality, we keep inventing more care, more treatment, which is a good thing. That improves the quality of life and extends life. And, of course, everybody wants it, which they understandably so. But it costs money. And you've probably seen reports of a, uh, a new drug, a pharmaceutical company, I can't remember which one, introduced a, a new drug to treat uh, hemophilia, uh, you know, a, a mm-hmm. bleeding disorder that uh, for which there's very little treatment, honestly. And so this is a new drug that addresses it, but it, it's some insane amount of money per treatment. I I had to deal with this in business. I had a fantastic employee that had melanoma and was going through treatment at MD Anderson, which is considered the top in the world in treating that particular type of cancer. And I recall that there was a, a drug that was just out of clinical trial, and and he was having to travel over there once a quarter for the treatment to extend life, and it was $46,000 per treatment at the time. And, of course, our, our insurance covered it. And that that's the dilemma, though, isn't it? And I, and I don't – you know, and a lot of people say, well, the pharmaceutical companies are ripping you off. Okay, so what do you want? You want the government to come in and, uh, and levy price controls? That's what they're trying to do right now. That's what the whole limiting of insulin and Medicare negotiations, which is really just price controls, they – they term it and describe it as letting Medicaid, uh, excuse me, Medicare negotiate prices with the pharmaceutical companies. And I, I would argue it's the reason we have this kind of chaotic, upside down, what appears to be dysfunctional price model in pharmaceuticals is because of government intervention. And that Medicare is a huge government program. Uh, last I checked, six, seven hundred billion dollars a year, and just behind Social Security is the number one line item of spending, and then Medicaid follows close behind. And if you look at the people on Medicare and Medicaid combined, that's now about half of the insured population. And both of those programs reimburse at um, at a rate that's quite a bit lower, not quite a bit, but. 60-70% is Medicaid relative to private, 80-90%. It's a bit of a, a moving target. But it's just a, I'm just pointing out it's a very complex, difficult problem. So Thomas says, why is Mississippi a Republican supermajority state if we're going to act like Democrats and expand everything? I'm going to ask you, Thomas, then why don't we exit? Why aren't you pushing to exit Medicaid? Totally, totally exit Medicaid totally exit snap and tell the government we don't want your infrastructure money and we don't want your money for rural broadband what's the difference you need to get off you need to get on your soapbox on that narrative right now otherwise you're being inconsistent stay with us we're coming right back we'll stand.
Gerard Gibbert. Keep rolling. Three, two, one. On Super Talk Mississippi. Welcome back, everyone. Midday Super Talk, Mississippi. Final segment for middays, and then Ricky Matthews will be hosting Super Talk Outdoors. Stick around for that. So, yeah, this whole debate, Will, about Medicaid expansion, Mississippi, one of the remaining 11 states that has not expanded, uh, you got to believe this will be a topic of discussion in the upcoming session. It it gets a little traction in in uh, every session since the Affordable Care Act was passed. And one thing that might be a little um, surprising to learn is that it was it was the uh, the family's first act, which the very first coronavirus relief bill passed under Donald Trump, and. Um, 2020, I want to say it was like March 2020. So this was like a 900, just a tiny $900 billion measure that preceded the $2.2 trillion CARES Act, right? And it actually included some provisions in it related to Medicaid. And the two main provisions were. What we talked about earlier was increasing the federal match to states by, I think it was around 6%, roughly. So whatever the federal government sends you, we're going to increase that by 6%, meaning that the state's share of funding the program would be less. Well, that's been a big-time shot in the arm here to the state of Mississippi, and that doesn't get talked about a lot because we already had the highest federal match just because of our our economic the economic status of our population, which is the way that match is determined. So we have benefited financially from the increased match. And because we're still under the federal health emergency that has been extended under Trump and now under Biden, we're still getting that 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 enhanced match. Plus, and I think um, I think even Drew Snyder, who runs Medicaid Mississippi, talked about it. I believe on Paul's show. Yeah, it, 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 uh, that Families First Act also included a provision that said states cannot disenroll people if they become ineligible as long as the emergency is in effect. So as a result, the roles have swelled by about 18 million wow. to 90 million in this country now on Medicaid. 90 million. And that's with 11 states not expanding. And so whenever the federal health emergency ends, about 14 to 15 million people are going to be kicked off the Medicaid rolls, including probably 120, 130,000 here in the state of Mississippi because they're no longer eligible, and that's without expanding. So it is. It is uh, increased. The enrollment has increased dramatically since the, the pandemic because of the continuous enrollment requirement. 
Mississippi, no exception there. So I don't know what's going to happen, but this thing is um, now currently in effect through January the 11th. It's just right around the corner. So I wonder if this is kind of the same deal, Will, as the student loan, which now you've seen the pause has been extended through June of next year. I'm sitting here thinking, that'll never end. We'll never pay the student loans back. It won't be be because he was able to get a a lawful executive order through that just cancels it. It's just we won't ever resume payment. Here's another. delaying it. Yeah. So here's the thing. Think about it. So if Republicans come in, let's say that Biden does it for another two years, a Republican president gets elected, and he signs an order. My gosh, they'll come at him with pitchforks or her. What do you mean i got to start repaying it? I haven't paid in five years. That's kind of the plan, I think. And they will leverage that very effectively. If you vote for that person, you're going to have to repay your student loans, not if you vote for me. It's wor- it works. And even a person who might be conservative would go, well, you know what? It'd be better for me, personally, right. in the long run, to vote this way versus the way that I normally would. I've really enjoyed having that extra few hundred dollars or however much it is every month and think about all the things I've I've bought with that, which, by the way, has exacerbated inflation. Yep. Because you got more money in your pocket to go spend on stuff. And we can't get a a grip on inflation. Oh, well. It's a a deep conversation, and it's one we got to keep having, folks, because it, once again, comes back to, and somebody said it on the ceasefire text line, and I agree, what is the proper role of government? Well, right now, government is paying for 90, the coverage under Medicaid for 90 million Americans and about 70 million in Medicare. So about 170 or so million get their coverage through their uh, through the private market, either group or individual. About half and half now. We are out of time here today. I'll be off tomorrow. I've got a speaking engagement. I'll be back with you on Wednesday from Cleveland. Until then, stay safe. God bless everyone. Super Talk Mississippi Media Production.